Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. There's the confession. What else do you need to know? He confessed. Tracy Bauer knew Juice. She knew Juice before January 26th of 2016. I'd wake up and think of things like, I don't know if I trust him. You know what he told police? So I know what the police say he told police. This is episode six, the new king of the jungle. I'm your host, David Payne. People were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. A warning to listeners this episode contains explicit language. It's raining again. What a gross day. This is fucking depressing out here. And we're irritable. So we need the Daniels. I know. That's all we need. Calm down, Junior. You're getting all bent. Just saying. Just because we drove around for fucking all day on some shitty ass. Look at that. Addresses. Never check. Oh my god, seriously, dude. You're going to blame me for that? Yeah. This hangry thing that you're doing is not attractive. I've pulled witness addresses from various police and medical reports, but none of them are good because, duh, they're homeless. And while we drive around in circles, Jody's giving me the lowdown on a job offer she's got. I start up doing Twitter videos. Was that 140 characters? You're good at hashtags, though. I am good at hashtags. That's That's pretty much your number one skill. (gasps) Damn! Listen here! It's not my number one skill. It's my number two skill. Um, number one? Being salty. Now, I'm a good strategic person. If you had some good strategic, you would have double checked the addresses that I pulled today because uh. they're all wrong. <laughs> Truth is, I should have left the detective work to Jody. Homeless or not, these witnesses would be found. And while we literally had been driving around in circles that day, other days, it seemed like destiny was our guide. Okay, here we go. Who's he talking to? My guess is himself. This is a target-rich environment. He's going to be on your side now. He just crossed the street. Hey, boss. You know a guy named Lucky that hangs around here? How about... Do we have one leg? What? Do we have one leg? I don't know. How about Reno? Okay. How about a woman named Lisa Marie? Red? Where's she hang out? Red's your cousin? 
How's what's, it going? what's your name? Uh, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. David. Good. Good. This fortuitous meeting of Bobby in the back alley near the Jack in the Box was reminiscent of our season one run-in with eyewitness Emily Holt. And just like before, with recorder in hand, we start right in, as if it's perfectly natural peppering this stranger with our questions. We're trying to uh, do a story on her boys. You know, they're going to trial. You know, you know about that case? Okay. So one of the things we're trying to figure out is the whole relationship with the family and why Lucky turned them in. Yeah, that's why we're trying to find Lucky. The more questions we ask, though... Do you stay out here? The more suspicious Bobby got. And his initial enthusiasm for us evaporated quickly. All right. Yeah, no worries. Right. Thanks, Thanks Bob. Appreciate it. Not surprising, I suppose, since unlike Emily Holt, who was a mere witness in the Tom Wales murder case, Bobby was someone alleged to have been involved in the jungle murders themselves by none other than James Toff Lucia. As we know, there were more than three people up in the caves that night, and on the videotape, James is asked by Lucky who was there. In this next section, Lucky asks, who went? Only the three of you went? And James said, all of us went. One, two, three, four, and Ski and Bobby. Bruce, only three of you guys went? All of us went. One, two, three, four, and then Ski and Bobby. Who the fuck is Ski? Okay, so we didn't know who Ski was either, but we sure enough just found Bobby. Right, yeah, no worries. Right. Thanks, Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. That was interesting. Let me make it that. That everybody in this town knows everybody, and while they're homeless, it's, you know, we're following our gut. And uh, who knows what his relationship. He said it was his cousin. Yeah. The Red's his cousin. So we're right by the jack-in-the-box, just like they said. Mm-hmm. Where she frequents around here. It'll take about 20 minutes and word will get back that we're looking for. What are the odds that every time we stop somebody, somebody knows something? Maybe that should be the name of the podcast. (laughs) Or it is. (laughs) Yeah. Bobby was just one of the many hanging chads in the Tahafalusia case. People whose names came up in testimony, but whose involvement in the murders was ephemeral. And the jury didn't quite know what to make of it either. Here's the foreperson, Debbie O'Neill. And then another issue was in the recording, the brothers identified two other people who were there. Ski and Bobby. Yeah. What did you learn about Ski or Bobby? We have no clue who they are. And we always wondered. Now, somebody on the jury said he was in the courtroom every day. But yeah, we never knew who they were or if anything was happening with them. And that was bothersome to people, too. Like, well, why aren't they sitting here? If they were there, then they're guilty also, right? And it wasn't just Bobby and Ski we had questions about. It was Juice, too. Not only did Juice give Detective Cooper a questionable alibi that he was at his friend's house, Warren slash Wallace, but he also volunteered to Detective Cooper. He just might have had some idea as to why the crime occurred. Juice claimed that about a week before the shootings, he had been party to a meeting between the teenage brothers and a guy named Nate, who was trying to enlist them all in a plan to rob Fat Wynn. Here's defense attorney Dan Norman. 
He's being talked to by Detective Cooper at the jail when Detective Cooper says, you know why I'm here, right? Jews knew who had been arrested. He knew who Detective Cooper was looking for information on. And he says, oh, yeah, I had this conversation with Nate. Yeah, and the tough, Felicia brothers, James and Jerome were there, too. They didn't say anything. They sit down and they talk for about 20 to 30 minutes with Nate talking about his beef with fat and how they should take out fat and run the drug trade in the caves. He didn't just want to take over the drug trade. Just now, if you're losing the thread here, don't worry. That's actually part of the game of circular finger pointing. And the jury would be right there with you. Talk a little bit about the Nate story. Nate, Nate. the snake. That was just weird because when Lucky... That's the first person he's asking for when he comes to the encampment. And we're like, well, who's Nate? And what does he have to do with it? Is it the first time that you learned that Nate had been planning to hit fat when Juice testified? Yes. Yeah, that kind of helped tie it up a little bit. Did you feel that that was an important point for people, that there was a reason to hit fat that was outside of this reported drug debt the mother had? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that kept people from coming to a conclusion was, wait a minute now, you know, was this planting the seeds so that this would happen? You know, were they really going to show up and didn't? Or, you know, so there was that kind of speculation going on. Did they talk in the trial about... Now, whether or not this meeting between Juice, Nate, and the Tafalusia brothers ever occurred, or whether Nate had an actual beef with fat, we'll never know. But the point of Juice's story was obvious. Point the finger elsewhere. And more to that point, make sure police don't focus on the one beef that was verifiable. The one between Fat on the one hand and Lucky, Juice, and the Samoan crew on the other. A beef over who would be the rightful king of the jungle. And it's clear that Fat, as Tracy said, kind of got this taste for money. He was doing well, but it's clear Fat wanted more. Fat was not happy dealing in the caves. Fat wanted the Dearborn jungle. And Lucky came in here and told you about it. And what did we hear? That at some point in the summer-ish of 2015, a number of months before the incident in this case took place, one of Fats' runners, one of his drug dealers, went up to Uncle Francis, one of the guys who lived with Juice, Lucky, Ace, part of the Samoan crew that dealt drugs and lived in the Dearborn jungle, pulled out a gun, and we don't know the exact words he said, but basically, this is our territory now. That is not disputed. And now, for maybe the first time, we would start seeing the broader outline of a backstory that would provide a possible motive for murder. A race war between the elders of two rival gangs. Uncle Francis goes and gets Uncle Ace. They get their muscle, Lucky and Reno. Lucky and Reno, either one or both of them grab guns, and this is serious enough that they're gonna chase this guy through the streets of Seattle, with Lucky screaming, fuck you, fuck the Asians. And Norman's portrayal of this territorial dispute between the Samoans in the Dearborn jungle and the Vietnamese in the caves jungle is given weight by Lucky's own words on the encampment video. No, it wasn't me, it was Francis. Francis came down there and called me because I had the, the thing, you know? So I went up there with Francis, with my brother with him and Uncle Ace. Yeah, the pair that nigga, bro. Fat was trying to get Uncle Francis, not me. And if Fat was trying to get Uncle Francis, well, maybe 
the reverse was true too. Because if Uncle Francis could take out Tracy and Fat, we might just get us a new king and queen of the jungle. Somebody somewhere will return right after this break. The thing about the jungle is it's no different than real life. There are classes and power struggles and turf battles. There's a hierarchy with courtesans and soldiers. In 2016, Tracy and Fat had become king and queen of the jungle after Vince Lombardi and the feds took out Tam with the backroom assistance of CW number six. Now, there was a new king of the jungle, and this time, the coronation would be courtesy of six masked men on bicycles. Okay, um, so today's Sunday at roughly 1.30, and we are here, tell me your name. I'm sitting in the jungle on a couch, not unlike the one Fat and Amy Joe were sitting on when they were shot two years ago. Jody's next to me, on another couch, with her headphones on doing a mic check. I know, I know, yeah. I'm getting both. No, no, you can put that on the table. It's good. My name is Jack Rosinski, and I am from Krakow, Poland. I am homeless here in the jungle. Next to us sits a middle-aged white woman with a bandana covering her head as chemo patients do, a 45-year-old bearded Polish man named Jack, and a 220-pound Samoan man who goes by the name of Uncle Francis. <laughs> On the center of the coffee table between us lies a deck of cards, a book about space aliens, and a 16-inch long machete. Although they are expecting us today, we've interrupted a fierce game of pinochle. And I am winning slightly by 100 points, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Game is tight. Describe... We're sitting no more than 50 yards from the freeway off-ramp in Francis's encampment. Cars and trucks race by as the Seahawks play the Cowboys less than a mile away. We found the new king of the jungle, among the 11,000 homeless people in the city. And after several entreaties, we've convinced him to speak with us. Joining us on the couches are two of his closest friends, Jack and Tanya. And while we've come to speak with Francis about his possible involvement in the jungle murders, it is he who admits he was nervous when we first approached his tent the previous day. Well, we were sitting right there by the corner right there. I was nervous. You were nervous was about nervous. us yeah, coming here? I don't want to go out there. And I thought you guys come by what happened over there, the, the thing where they got shot. I thought you guys were, oh, you thought we were the police? Yeah, Oh, you thought we were reporters. Especially in my tent, I don't want to come out. Uh, because you don't want to talk about the shooting or because... Yeah, I don't want to talk about it because it's very... Even as a guy, I said, when I, when I, woke, when I stand up and ask a guy, why you shoot me? Why? What's the purpose of that? You know, and I walk out of it and he gave me an answer. He gave me an answer question. Uncle Francis was noticeably unnerved that day as he was recovering from gunshot wounds from an unrelated incident just two weeks ago. And when we first rolled up on him in the jungle unannounced, I felt a little like Martin Sheen finding Brando in Apocalypse Now. But despite our trepidation, by the time we eventually settled in for our scheduled interview, 
Jody had already assumed a certain familiarity with our subject. You know, I noticed your eye today. It's looking more swollen. Yeah. Are you taking, but not to be your mother, but, <laughs> oh but are you taking medication? No, I noticed it looks infected. I'm upset and I'm, I'm quite swollen because I, I wish I can do something. It makes me so angry instead of me. I can't do nothing to, to help him. To help him, the man who I shot you? Help homeless people. Oh. Do you forgive him for shooting you? Yeah. I forgive him, but I don't forget what he did to me. How are you able to do that? What the man did to him, what he says he's willing to forgive but maybe not forget, is shoot him at a range of 15 feet. And it's driving Francis crazy. Why? Can I just ask you a couple things about the shooting? Yes. You said he shot you, so you were shot three times. Yeah, I was walking inside the tent, and uh, I turned my back, and then I walked in there, the guy shooting me from behind. So he hit you? on on my head right here, and one on my arm. And then after that, when I would lay down, I, I, I passed out. She tried to grab my feet and t- told me to a dumpster. I was here sitting in here, jog, jog, jog. When I saw him, I remember his face. So do you know why you were shot? No. That's why I'm still frustrated. I, I want to know why this man shot me for no reason. We weren't necessarily buying that explanation. But what was more unexplainable was who and what we found in Francis's camp. Yeah, why do you like it out here? It's a, it's a feeling of the peace, love, and freedom, being around friends. This is the second best on the, in the God's universe besides paradise he created. Second best. Jack Rosinski is a thin man who looks 20 years older than his age. He wears an elaborate metal chain from India around his neck and speaks with a heavy Polish accent through chapped lips ringed by a bushy, sandy-colored beard. He is suspicious of outsiders, and although he is younger and 75 pounds lighter than Francis, he now acts as his self-appointed protector, although when they first got together, it was the other way around. Share the story, Jack, of how you guys met. It was in the park when I was sitting after work and the man came with the knife and Francis came from the bench and Francis said, let my friend go. I will remember the sound I heard and I will hear it forever. He saved my life. Jack's reverence for Uncle Francis, though, goes well beyond gratitude for saving his life. It literally oozes out of him. Francis adopted me, I'm telling you. He cured my total insane alcoholism, I would say. Trying to kill myself, but somehow God said, not yet, not yet, not yet. At Jack's recital of the love he has for Francis, Tanya, who is seated to my right and who is dying of stage four lung cancer, starts to silently cry. Tell us why you're crying. Because he is like a godly person. You know, he's always here and supportive for people. And he is a man, but he's also a very special man. You know, I've grown to really... Tanya's tear-streaked and weather-beaten face belies a hard life that has surely seen betrayal by other men. 
and I'm curious about what keeps her going. I'm like him, I don't fear dying. God will take me when he's ready. I notice a well-worn Bible in the satchel purse she is carrying, and I ask her about it. I went to church this morning. That was just keeping me, God's with me all the time. What inspires you? I just, um, I've always been into God. I mean, God's always been with me, even though, and through my struggles, I kind of left him for a while. When I lost my husband, my twin brother, my daughter, I gave up on him. I said, well, you're not really there for me. I'm losing my family like that, you know, but... Then I came back to him, and... In Tanya's tragedies, I find echoes of Tracy Bauer, of someone whose life had spun out of control when unforeseen death ravished her family, and who had her own cautionary tale to those who would judge her from afar. I just wish that they would kind of look at us a different way, you know, because we're not bad people. You know, God can give you, but he can take it away, too. You know, just like your job that they had that they're so, well, I got a job, I got a house, I got all this and that. Well, we had all that too, but it was lost. But the way that we all connect is amazing here. I know Francis and I and Jack, all of us, we love each other, we try to help each other. But unlike Jack, for whom it was bromance at first sight, Tanya didn't come to this love for Francis so easily. You shared with us before that you didn't like him when he was I didn't like him Francis. at all. It's not that I didn't like him. I didn't like his ways. I don't hate but you, nobody. But something's or, changed. You said something's changed in you. A lot of things changed. That's the way I am. I, I was a, a mean guy. If I look at you, if you look at me the wrong way, I go there and hit you and slap you. Now I humble myself as I met God and everything. Even the person called me up on my face, I left at him. I walk away. I change a lot. I'm happy where I am right now. What caused that change? Because I met God. And it's hard for me to talk. And now, I see even a glimmer of salty tears in Jody's jaded eyes. When I first came to Seattle in 2003, I don't believe in God. I don't. Until last year, something happened to me. I was homeless, got nowhere else to go, and I went to the church, and uh, the preacher saw me. He called me in the front, so he wanted me to make my testimony. So I closed my eyes, and I said, God, please help me, you know. So I told him, my name is Francis. Maybe God sent me this way over here for, for help. And from that day, they gave me $2,000. They gave me a job. They gave me a car. They gave me an apartment. You know? And that's why I get on my knees, and I say, thank you, God. I accept you as my Savior. Now, before we walked into this encampment, remember, we were on edge. We had sat through a murder trial where the defense had all but accused Francis and Juice and Lucky of somehow being involved in the mass shooting. And to say we were unprepared for this outpouring would be an understatement. In fact, under this telling of the word in the holy book of Jack and Tanya, we would find in Francis this half-German, half-Samoan immigrant the traits of another king, the king of Nazareth. 
he has something which we don't have it. And I, I tell you, I can feel it. His spirit is so deep. And the king of the jungle does a hell of a job channeling that most famous king of all. First, denying his status. Matthew 26, 23. People describe you as the leader or the king of the jungle. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not a king of the jungle. I'm just here to help them. Preaching to the people, Isaiah 9-6. Every day, people come talk to me. Every day, I, it's like I'm a counselor. Expressing unbridled faith, Mark 11:22. To me, it's all God's word. I just walk and talk, you know, eat through all the rest of it. And washing his disciples' feet, John 13:4. And a honey bucket. I'll lock it, I'll clean it. I don't, I don't, I don't care, I'll clean it, I'll watch it, you know. And you look around, and whatever he's doing is working. So, Francis, I look around this table, and it's the most diverse group of people keep coming through here. You got <laughs> I don't know, it's not me. <laughs> it's what? not me, it's the man above, but not me. <laughs> right? Samoan, Polish, I, I, African-American, I white. Why? Because of him. Because of him. I'm yeah, telling you, I, they won't say anything. Sometimes they are reserved. Sometimes they want to know who he is. They are from East Coast. How does everybody know? I mean, they keep coming up, <laughs> down, sideways, just to come to see him. As if on cue, a young man in a Seahawks jersey who looks like he could start at strong safety wanders silently to the edge of the camp to see what we're doing. He looks like he's ready to play for the uh, Seahawks. <laughs> he's come, he's got his glove, yeah, his football. Yes, everybody wants mommy and daddy. He is one of them. And babysitter also. And in that instant, you could see the hold and attraction Uncle Francis might have had on three teenage boys trying to make their way in the jungle. If Francis was a shepherd and the homeless his flock, the question was, where was he leading them? Was he there to save the people, serve the people, or lead a revolution? Some people, homeless people, are getting angrier and angrier, mobilized and organized. Francis I'm saying, but that's first my point is that's like the perception. Raise the voice of homeless very strong. Today, we don't have a lawyers to defend yeah, us. We speak from the heart. Your life is better now, but in the future, you're going to feel the same way that we feel. If you put your shoe in our shoe, you don't know what to do. You're not going to survive out here. You're going to, you're going to be... If Francis was prophetic, we still weren't sure if he was the rightful leader of a forsaken people or a false messiah. And even though there was a brilliant blue sky that day, we came away a little more cloudy in our understanding of what happened in his jungle that night in 2016. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. Look, do I think they've had horrible lives? Yes. Do I think they've done shitty things? Yes. You know, he ain't St. Francis. Look. New at 5, prosecutors are charging two Seattle firefighters in an attack on a homeless person. She just didn't walk up to somebody and start kicking him. I mean, let's get realistic here. And the type of wound that he had was, it was severe. 
You know, you can see down into the white meat of his head, if you know what I mean. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. Thank you for listening. Foolish, foolish game.